I'd like to talk to you tonight about uh, this practice of loving kindness, this form of meditation. And <clears throat> there are many reasons that we do it. Um, each one of you have your own motivations for doing it. Um, it heals the heart, it develops the heart. And one of the ways that this practice is used uh, traditionally um, in countries like Burma and Thailand is to develop something called samadhi, or the unification of the heart, having the heart be very whole, very collected, um, very absorbed um, in one particular direction. So how to actually develop that unity of heart so the heart, the mind isn't scattered, the heart isn't scattered, how to collect it. And when the heart arises in a very unified, collected way, uh, the Pali word for that is samadhi. And we have it in Buddhism, and it's also a word that's used in uh, yoga circles. They have it in Hindu practices as well, this word samadhi. It often gets translated as the word concentration, which is not uh, my favorite translation of that word, um, it's a little bit too aggressive for what the actual experience of samadhi is. So I'd like to talk tonight about this loving-kindness practice and the development of samadhi, or this um, beautiful unity of heart, unity of mind, unity of attention. When we're on a retreat like this, we can come for many reasons, and then the retreat shows you what the retreat is. So whatever your intentions were, uh, that got you to drive up here <laughs> and had you sit down and put in some effort, but you're discovering what the retreat really is. And so that's really not in our control to make a retreat behave one way or the other. And what I've learned over time is that the retreat that I get is really the retreat that I've needed. And I've come to loving kindness retreats uh, for healing and gotten calm, which was kind of healing, but in hindsight, oh, that actually was what I was looking for. In hindsight, I can see that that's what I needed. And I've come to develop samadhi and gotten deep healings instead. And that's sort of what uh, my path was sort of leading me to. So you get the retreat that you get. Um, and from what I've seen, no matter what happens on these retreats, it tends to be um, a positive outcome. But sometimes we're more in a healing side, and so there might be a little bit more um, turbulence of heart. We're exploring places where the heart is aching and in pain, and part more of what we're doing here has this sense of exploring tender sides of the heart. But we don't necessarily feel much stability. Um, little windows of it, little glimpses of it. But that's sort of what the retreat is. It's more of a healing retreat. It's more about going into places of sorrow or pain. Um, and that might come with it a little bit more emotional upheaval. And so if that's happening for you generally on this retreat or if it's happening for you lately, this talk about this collected, stable, uh, calm heart, um, it just might not be where your practice is right now, but that's not a statement on your practice. You can have retreats, you can have experiences that are very collecting and still later do deep healings. And you can have deep healings and then head towards collecting and back and forth. So I'm going to describe it a little bit. And I think we can all tap into this a little bit to some degree. And if the conditions are right, this might be a little bit more of how your practice is developing. Um, again, if the conditions are right for you at this time. I'd like to... Um, to start with a, a little bit of a story. Um, on my very first retreat, I was back in Massachusetts at our uh, sibling site, Insight Meditation Society. I was walking through the woods uh, on one of the meal breaks and it was beautiful. It had just snowed, it was March, um, so it was crisp and I was walking through and there weren't any leaves on the trees. I could see through the forest and walking through and um, three little birds and were flying very near me. I said, oh my God, I must be giving off this very different vibe because I'm a meditator and I've never been this close to wild birds before. <laughs> they seem to be following me. Like, oh, wow, I wonder if something's happened that's very 
And so I stopped and I admired how close they were. And one of them flew right up to my shoulder and I froze. I'm like, that has never happened to me before, ever. And I thought, it must be the meditation. This must be something. It must be a sign that something has happened. And I later learned out that someone had actually um, deeply befriended the birds in the area over many, many months um, by gently holding out bird seed for a long period of time, putting it on the table and holding their hand out. And the, learn, the birds had learned that uh, meditators were kind of safe objects that had bird seed <laughs> quite often. <laughs> and so it actually wasn't all about me. It was about someone who had put in a lot of time and faith to put out bird seed and slowly invite these wild birds to transform their relationship to these large animals, humans. And um, I, th- I th- think I have the story straight, and someone could correct me if they know more, but I think it took many weeks, if not months, of patience, of putting out birdseed on a table, sitting there, letting the birds slowly learn that the people in this area were benevolent, and they could learn to trust and even actually find these people a resource for food and shelter and caring. So that person had faith, that person put in the time, and slowly these wild birds um, uh, developed a different relationship to humans. And I just happened to be walking into the middle of a lot of work that had been done and received this, uh, this transformation. And that's a lot of what the unity of heart is like. It's not something we can control, and it's not something we can master and kind of turn on at will. Some people in some training sessions um, over long periods of time might get at times some mastery of having the heart be very settled, but it takes very specific conditions to have that be um, something you feel like you're having a lot more influence over. For a lot of us, we have to just be faithful in the right conditions. And then at some point, the heart settles and the heart unifies and the heart collects for a time, and then something shifts, your blood sugar drops, or you can only be that calm for so long before something else happens, and your mind uh, moves in a different direction, your heart moves in a different direction. So we get visited by this collectedness, and then it dissipates, and it's really no fault of your own. And if you're patient, if you don't cling to that unity of heart, that settledness, um, it's likely to visit again. And that's often one of the underlying ways that we get the heart to settle is that we're patient with the heart. And we let the heart, we don't demand that it settle. We don't use aggression or force or control. We set the conditions and we're patient within the conditions. After a while, the turbulences of the heart, the defenses of the heart ease. And we learn to have trust and a little bit more of an open-heartedness. And then things shift as they do and as you've seen. And then you go into another round of purity, another realm where you're dealing with some grief or some frustration or some fatigue. And if you're patient with that, that passes. And what's left after that passes, a little bit more of a strength of heart to be easily settled, easily calmed, easily full, nourished within. That's one of the beautiful parts of having a longer retreat like this have many days in a row to just like a carrot in a crock pot just sitting in the right conditions and slowly slowly letting the tenderness of the carrot soften and sweeten under the right conditions versus like hitting the carrot with a blowtorch saying come on you know this is my lunch break let's get (laughs) and uh this sort of crock pot practice (laughs) um and that was a shift in my practice when i when i stopped trying to be Western about it and achieve greatness in effort, through effort. And more just put my carrot in the crock pot, set the timer and just marinate with, you know, if it's loving kindness practice with the phrases while sitting, while walking, having a lot more faith that whatever was happening usually after the fact would validate itself. And that would lend more faith to just let yourself be in the conditions of the retreat and put in this steady practice, nothing overly forceful. If you find yourself a little adrift, you can invite yourself to be a little bit more intentional, but again, not to be aggressive with practice. 
And what can happen in these conditions is that a lot of the driven nature of our mind and our heart and daily life that ends up stressing us, fatiguing us, fragmenting our attention, um, those forces abate. And often what happens several days in is that because we haven't been agitating ourselves as much, that our being gets to calm down a little bit. And so we're inviting ourselves to calm down in these conditions. And you can do that in many ways. Other retreats tend to use the body and breathing. That's a very beautiful way to do that. And here we can use the loving kindness practice, the steadiness of phrases, this uh, tonality of kindness, of friendliness, of gentleness, to be the mode that we invite ourselves to be rested, collected, and present, to be wholehearted. And over time, though, uh, the turbulating forces underneath can temporarily subside and we get to know moments of peace. And hopefully, all of you have known moments uh, on the retreat. It hasn't all been turbulence. It hasn't all been the Cuisinart of emotions on high blend or the washing machine of purification, but nothing but the agitation <laughs> over and over. If, if you're having that, you know, my heart's out to you. But I also know that that's good. I've had those retreats where I've been in the washing machine cycle. It's like, really? Another day of the washing machine? <laughs> that's how you get the really deep stains out. <laughs> so I'm grateful in hindsight for those and my compassion and happiness for you <laughs> if that's what your retreat's like. But again, because we're not overly agitating ourselves, and we find a, a little bit more of a, a marathon pace, it's not a sprint, but just sort of steadiness, how to do retreat over many days, <clears throat> finding a steadiness of effort, continual practice. You might find times where the heart isn't so full of an obstacle. It's not tired or resentful or distracted. And you might find that you've actually built some momentum so that when the timing's just right, you're sitting here and it's like, actually, this is not hard. You know, I can easily recall someone that I care about. The phrases make sense, they feel kind of intuitive and I'm enjoying this and I like this mode. This is kind of sweet. And maybe you get that for several seconds in a row and it's sweet and maybe you get longer windows of that. Very few people get that and then just hang out there. It'd be nice if we could, but those usually are the rising of certain conditions and then one of those conditions supporting that type of calm usually gives out and we get a little tired again or a little irritated or excited about a fantasy and <clears throat> we notice that we're drifting out of that um, underlying calm. Again, if we don't react to it, if we don't cling to it, if we just keep practicing, practicing with the initial motivation, which was patience and a willingness to practice, we'll be visited again by calm, by collectedness. It's a, it's a different approach. Again, sort of a, a Western cultural approach is very much you do and accomplish. And so you have to do, you have to construct calm. <laughs> you have to manufacture your calm. You have to really put your will to it. Come on, let's do this calm thing. <clears throat> and over time you see that that usually just is agitating at some point. It gets you in the door and you sit down, but at some point you just have to marinate in the conditions and you find that over time, calm visits you, collectedness visits you for a time, then it dissipates, and then it revisits you, and then it dissipates, and it revisits you, this collectedness. And so we call that, that um, whenever you feel like there's a flow and there's an ease of the practice, and you don't feel like you're struggling against obstacles of tiredness or restlessness, some underlying irritation, or despair, or some fantasy that's distracting, but we're actually present and in flow. And however you got there through the breath or through loving kindness practice, that type of flow experience is what we call samadhi. It's what the old Pali word, language of the Buddha, we call that samadhi. And it's very, it's, it's very healing to be in that flow state and to be in a non-agitated state. It supports presence, and so you're not working so hard to be present. You find presence and intimacy with the present is quite uh, intuitive. And from that, you can begin looking like, oh, this is what a heart is like when it's not agitated, 
when it's not split or haggard or tired, when it's not fearful, when it's not obsessed with a fantasy, but when it's actually present, it can look around and actually learn, this is what a life is like. This is what an actual present moment is like. I can see it because I'm not agitated. So not only is it healing to allow yourself to be in these flow states, they tend to be orienting. We tend to learn because we're actually present in that moment. Life isn't a concept we're trying to figure out, but we're actually intimately in it. So you can see, well, this is what it's like to actually be alive. I'm here. I can really learn from an actual present moment versus having to think about life or be distracted or not have, it get, have your full attention. Often on retreat, <clears throat> um, we can't really measure what's actually happening it's just something about being on the retreat. We often are trying to evaluate what's happening, but you all are much deeper into the realm of the retreat and to your own collectedness and settledness. We can see it in the actual, when we see you. Um, your own personal experience might be more, there's ups and downs, but collectively and individually we feel that there's been a, a settling and hopefully you can feel that yourselves, but even when you can't feel it, it's actually happening um, that's another thing to have faith in is that uh, you might be experiencing ups and downs, but there's actually something else happening that's larger that we often can't evaluate. I used to live by the Puget Sound, and if I went out on a little rowboat, the boat would be going up and down, and I would feel the ups and downs, but I'd never feel the tide coming in. It was just too vast, it was too big. And slowly creep in, so this huge, vast amount of water was creeping into the Puget Sound and lifting all the boats. So my personal experience was these ups and downs of the ripples on the surface. But I'd actually be every boat would be rising, you know, a good five, six feet in the air. So the tide is definitely rising through all of you, but your personal experience might be this up and down, and that just is true for retreats. It's true for all the retreats. One of the reasons, again, this word samadhi, it, I'm not sure who first translated it as concentration. Um, it, again, it doesn't work so much because I, can, I used to concentrate when I was studying or I can concentrate on a problem. I'm usually not relaxed and calm and open and then giving my full rested attention to something I'm concentrating on. It usually is a little bit more, I'm bending my mind towards something. That's really not what samadhi is. It's not a bending of the mind, or stressing the mind to take a different shape. You invite the mind to kind of show up wholeheartedly. But the experience of samadhi, again, that sort of easy flow state of being in the present, there's a collectedness and there's usually an underlying sense of well-being in that flow state. And so, um, again, you all might be able to pinpoint times on the retreat that you've felt that walking down the hill or sitting here at a particular time when you're in that flow state. And we can call that the sort of the arising of samadhi. And it's, it plays a very central role to the development of meditation, this development of the, uh, when the agitating forces subside and there's just more collectedness, more uh, evenness, more flow again in the present. So you can use loving kindness to do that. And one way it starts is just the willingness sometimes to get, be with the phrases and be with the image and be in the form of the practice. And at some point you might just get uh, some sense of samadhi and flow just with the form. So repeating the phrases, having the image. And when it becomes more about loving kindness samadhi or collected and unity of heart around loving kindness, and what has the capacity to keep growing and developing is actually this uh, warm tone of heart. So if you actually have felt that warm tone of heart in the loving kindness practice, as that begins to be the, the lead factor, and if you're in a type of kind flow or you're feeling as you're walking or sitting that um, you feel like you're soaking, you're resting in warmth, you're resting in kindness, it feels genuine to your heart. And you're giving it a little prompt and a little encouragement, but it's not something you're manufacturing through effort. 
you're supporting it, but your heart is in kindness, your heart is in gentleness, your heart is in some expression of loving kindness. And again, it's just flowing like a stream or like a river. That would be how loving kindness and samadhi are arising at the same time. This unity and flow of heart, but it has this quality of warmth to it. Each of the four Brahma-viharas that we're practicing, loving kindness, metta, uh, the karuna practice that we practice this afternoon, um, can also become a unity, a, a flowing unity of heart uh, with compassion. You can also have this empathetic joy in the well-being of others, a really uplifted, buoyant flow state. That's mudita. That can also be used to develop samadhi. And then the fourth Brahma-vihara, equanimity, this beautiful, tender balance of heart um, can also be how we absorb the heart in kindness, we absorb the heart in love, we steady the heart in love. All four of these Brahma-viharas, all four of these uh, developments of heart can be used uh, to develop samadhi, to develop this collectedness and unity. And you can keep developing deeper and deeper degrees of a more sort of fuller heartedness that feels brighter and stronger and more stable and more far reaching and you know, much more stable, not um, perturbed by background doubts or irritations, those get even more washed out. And at times you're just resting in this uh, beautiful, clear, flowing heart space. Again, all four of these Brahma-viharas can be used to develop samadhi. It's quite beautiful to use this for that tone, for that development of samadhi. Again, classically, most people are starting with breath. It's a little bit more common to use breath and body to develop that sense of flow within presence. But you can use uh, the Brahma-viharas to do that, these tones of kindness and love. When I went to um, Burma to do the practices, and I ordained as a monk. They started me on breath practice, and I was developing this stable attention just on body awareness. And I saw that I could do that, but I saw that knowing my temperament within, that one of my instabilities that kept my breathing practice from really deepening is that I did have to do a little bit more heart development. I had to bring a little bit more heart to the practice that one of the ways that my mind would come out of the flow of the present, it would just be slightly irritated, slightly skeptical. And so just being with the breath more and more and more wasn't how I was gonna deepen my presence, my sense of presence. And so when I was working with this one very influential teacher I had, uh, Nikki worked with him too, this Burmese teacher called Paok Saida. I think Sally's practiced with him and another a number of teachers have practiced with him but I got to work with him for six months. And it was lovely. Again, he started me with uh, collecting and unifying my attention on being present with the breath. But when I told him, like, oh, I think I need a little bit more of the loving kindness practice, his eyes brightened. He said, oh, that's lovely. Do that. So I spent um, a good month just doing the practices you're doing here. And sometimes I'd be in the healing side of the practice. And I'd be surprised at how much I was working through um, my high school experiences. <laughs> yeah. A lot of patterns got laid down in school. And then I'd work through a layer of that and like, okay, this is a little bit more turbulent than I thought it was going to be. But when I healed another layer of my heart, settled some things, did forgiveness practice, and I found after that time, I would settle in, my heart would be a little more stable a little more quiet, a little more collected. So the healings were important passage points to deepening this sense of collectedness. And then after that, I went back to uh, body and breath awareness, and I found that the, the, the general tone of my approach to practice had really been shifted by bringing in a lot more kindness, a lot more kindness. I used to have a bright mind, but not necessarily a warm mind, or the warm warming factors were not as strong as the brightness of my curiosity. So it was really good to bring in the Brahma-viharas, and they supported the deepening of wisdom practices. So that was uh, time really well spent. 
So we can just basically practice under these conditions and we'll find over time as the heart heals and lets go and puts down its armoring and begins to trust its openness and its connectivity that you might find that um, just the conditions alone, like putting the carrot doesn't need to figure out what's happening in the crock pot. It just hangs out there. So you can just hang out in these conditions and ripen, get softer and sweeter. <clears throat> but you can also begin to, the, the Buddha, one of the things that was amazing about the way he taught is that he had this beautiful analytical mind or capacity and he began to study what are the actual factors that are ripening that lead to this expression of this collectedness. I mean, you can just have faith and go, but you can also begin to see, oh, actually, it's sort of, there are certain factors that if I strengthen them, I'm more likely to be visited by this collectedness. And so then you can get into your practice and do a little more uh, intentional development. And so he talked about five factors of mind, five qualities of mind, that as they're ripening, really those are the supportive factors that when they all ripen and arise in unison, that tends to be where we're having this flow experience. So again, you don't have to know these things, like the you can be the carrot in the crock pot and just keep practicing and not get too heady about it. Or you can go in and actually enjoy understanding how this unity arises and what are the supporting factors. So he talked about five factors. And um, the word for samadhi, when it really is profound, when you really feel this beautiful collectedness, the old word was, um, or the old Pali word, is called jhana, and that gets translated as absorption. So when you're really absorbed in the present and your attention isn't split or diminished by fatigue, but you feel whole, collected, and in flow with the present, um, when that deepens, uh, the English word we have for that is called absorption. And the old word, the old Pali word is jhana. So the five factors I'm describing about are called jhana factors. If you want to use the lingo, um, you're working on the jhana factors, you're curious about the jhana factors, what supports and creates the stability, unity, heart of mind. Um, and they're quite common, and people who are in the biz know about these jhana factors. <laughs> So you'll see them brighten up like, oh, the jhana factors. Yeah, let's talk about the jhana factors. They're nice because they're also beautiful qualities of heart and mind. They're not just another list about all of the, the ways our mind is not present or not, uh, um, not in its beautiful side. These are actually beautiful qualities of heart and mind we can intentionally develop. <clears throat> so the first one, the Pali word is vitaka or vitaka. And it's the ability to intentionally point your attention in a direction you've chosen versus having it sort of wander about by forces like a leaf on a stream just spinning around. It's like, okay, I'm sitting here and anything could be happening, but I'm actually going to point my attention in this direction. So every time you choose the phrases, you intentionally draw up an image, you get in touch with that quality of heart, that's vitaka. That's sort of not just being adrift, but intentionally aiming the heart in a certain direction. And so if you only have vitaka, you aim, and you have, you're there for a moment, and then you drift, because you don't have other supportive uh, conditions. But at least that first one's required so that you're not a passive player. You're intentionally choosing the phrases, intentionally choosing the image, intentionally drawing up the heart, inviting it towards a uh, kind expression. And then as that stabilizes, the vitaka factor, as it develops, the vitaka factor begins to be much more, I can point my attention where I want. So I can give you my full attention, and then I can give you my full attention. And it's this ability to sort of harness the, uh, the power of the heart and mind and point it in one direction. So this first factor is the first taste of being in that flow state. It's a little bit more choiceful, takes a little bit of effort, but you're taking all the factors of heart and mind that might go in all these different directions and you're asking them, let's head this direction, let's be here, and let's really send love to my best friend, really send love to my nieces and nephews or my children, really send love in this direction. 
and that you can feel that. You all have done that. And so that, when you see that happening or feel that happening, that's yourself with this first absorption factor, this first jhana factor called vitaka. The English word we tend to use for it is aiming. You aim the heart. And so if you find yourself aiming the heart, then that's vitaka, that's this first jhana factor. Sometimes you will go there and you aim the heart and you see the heart respond. That means that you can, you can use that factor. Other times there are obstacles. The heart's restless, the mind's restless, it's distracted, it's too tired, and you try aiming, but it doesn't feel like it's really clicking. You try to aim the heart, but it just doesn't rally. And it feels too tired, too scattered. So you're trying to welcome this factor, but it's not really arising. Then later on in the day, something shifts, and you find, yeah, I aimed it, and there it was. I could point it in this direction of loving kindness, and then Sally guided this compassion. I pointed in that direction, and we did compassion. And then afterwards, I went walking, and I pointed in this direction. That's this first one, vitaka. And again, we often call that the aiming of the heart. The second factor is called uh, vitaka or vitaka. And that's the ability to aim and then support it so that you sustain where you've aimed. You don't just aim and drift off, aim and drift off, but you aim and then you give a little bit more intention of support. So let's not, let's be loyal where I've aimed. Let's aim and sustain my attention. So I drop the, the meta phrases, I drop the image, get in touch with my heart, find that, okay, I've aimed the heart. Now I'm gonna do a support. Now I, my attention could wander over here. I feel a little pull on a fantasy. I'm letting that go, I'm gonna sustain my attention here. It's like, yeah, but why smell that thing at lunch? I wonder if they're going to really serve that. It's like, oh, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to sustain my attention here. That's what we talk about. It's starting to get strong. And at times it's weak, so you can aim the heart. We talk, uh, yeah, we talk is strong, but we chara is weak. You can aim the heart, but you can't sustain it. And you've all experienced that. I've experienced that. So that means one factor is strong, but the other factor is ripening. And then when they align together, you find I can aim the heart and I can sustain it. That's vitaka, vichara, aiming and sustaining. These are the first two factors that create this sense of flow. And they're the ones that we can often um, put effort into, aiming, sustaining, aiming and supporting our attention to be unified in one direction. And they're, uh, they're siblings, vitaka, vichara. They tend to arise together. They tend to require a little bit of effort on our part to aim and sustain our attention. The third factor, <clears throat> the third of the five, is called uh, piti, or piti, <laughs> depending on your accent. P-I-T-I. And it gets translated in many different ways. Um, sometimes it's translated as delight or exuberance or... Um, uh, zest or zeal, and you come in and you feel this sort of energy rising from within, an enthusiasm. So that doesn't happen all the time. You know, sometimes you're aiming and sustaining, but you don't feel that lift inside. And other times you feel inspired. It's sort of like the sun comes out and you feel inspired. I love doing this practice. I want to do this practice. I'm willing to do this practice. I feel the energy rising up from within. So when you feel that inspiration rising from within, that's the third of these five factors. And it means that it's not all work. You're not just aiming, sustaining with a dedication and loyalty, but somewhat efforting in practice. You feel there's sort of wind in your sails. I love being here, I love doing this practice. And um, that tends to be where we start to taste a little bit more flow happening when we have energy rising up from within. That can be there, and it also cannot. You can welcome this sense of inspiration and then find that whatever, for whatever reason, it's not really coming. I welcome this piti, I welcome this um, inspiration, I welcome this energy to rise so I can practice with inspiration and this delight inside. But I'm tired, uh, or I'm di digesting food after lunch and I'm a little dull. So sometimes uh, this, uh, Pitti factor will rise and sometimes it won't. But as it does rise, and as you actually do more of the practice and you see its worth, 
and you see, yeah, actually, I really want to do this practice because it's making a difference. And if I don't do this practice, I'm just left with old habits. I don't want to live my life with the old habits. I want th- this newer capacity of being present and deeper in my heart. And so with that little reflection and with that desire to be here, that actually lifts you up. So it's not all about work. It's actually about inspiration rising from within. So again, that's the third factor that supports this collectedness and unity when you're um, lifted from within by this energetic factor. The fourth factor uh, is called sukha. And the translation of that is sort of a happy contentedness. And just as piti sort of lifts you up from within, this sukha factor actually uh, broadens and calms and satisfies. And so if you have felt that, just sitting here, feeling satisfied, it's pretty amazing. You're just sitting here and you're satisfied. People plan huge, elaborate vacations in order to possibly be satisfied. (laughs) They work very hard for satisfaction. And here you're just sitting here, but you're visited by satisfaction. And then later on the day, you're not satisfied. It's restless and like, where'd that satisfaction go? Well, you were visited by this factor. It, It was ripening. And maybe you're partially satisfied, maybe you're partially content. You feel that possibly developing over the days here, this ability to be content, just practicing loving kindness. As you feel that settledness, that beautiful, simple collectedness, that's the fourth factor of sukha. The word sukha actually has the Indo-European root of our same word sugar, the S-U of sugar, the G and the K are actually uh, closely related linguistically. So it's the mind. It's tasting the sugar of contentment. Not all of us have a positive relationship to sugar, so that <laughs> analogy might not work. It's like, God, I'm trying to cut sugar out of my diet. No, But you, t- you can feel that. You can feel like um, strangely content. It's like, wow, what is this contentment? I'm just walking, but feeling the sun on my skin and this calmness of heart and yes please more of this I like this I like feeling this contented that's where we're actually starting to be nourished by meditation nourished by these conditions and it's starting to actually tip the scales from a general sense of doing and trying to accomplish and that teetering on happiness and it coming and going where actually you can start to feel yourself resting and soaking and the contentment is a little more available. If you're in a healing part of this tradition or a healing part of the practice where your your heart is releasing old griefs, you might not feel so much of this sukha. You might feel more of the, the turbulence of heart. But then there's a strange part, and I've heard people report this, where it actually felt beautiful and soothing to actually be the sweet side of grieving someone that you miss. It's like it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It actually was sweet to miss somebody on that level. I was very happy to acknowledge how much I love somebody. So it doesn't always have to come through um, you know, the calmness. You can actually get there through beautiful emotions where you feel this sukha factor. But it tends to be settling. And so if you have these two siblings, the piti and the sukha, this delightedness and this settledness, if they can co-arise together, you have all the sort of the open spaciousness of the sukha, but it doesn't become drowsy. It's actually open, spacious, and then filled with this uh, sweet delight. And you actually want these two factors to um, feed each other and balance each other. The piti without the sukha tends to be agitating. It tends to be exciting and it's easy to get drawn into fantasies because the mind is so delighted. So if you have that lift happening with also the settling factor of sukha, then you have um, the two working together. And that usually is what it's like to be absorbed with anything, loving kindness practices, breathing meditation, walking meditation, is that these factors are rising and harmonizing together. So you might... uh, as you work with them and invite them, you might then feel like, oh, the one factor is a little low, one factor is, I can feel the other one. Let's see if I can find all five and welcome them together. So 
we've talked about four of them. We talk of vichara, piti and sukha. This aiming, sustaining, this delight and this happy contentedness. And the fifth one, um, <clears throat> uh, it has two pronunciations and it's probably accurately pronounced uh, ek agata, but that's not as easy to say as ikagata. <laughs> so you might hear people talking about ikagata, but it's this ek agata. And the ek is um, poly for one. So it's when the mind really rests in one place versus being split by two. Two things going on in the mind. I'm hearing and thinking. Two things going on. I'm trying to be present, but there's this background thing. So unity of mind ends up being supported by this underlying factor, this ekagata or ekagata. You'll notice this factor is, is the sort of the, the, maybe the weakest of all of them. It takes the longest for it to ripen so you can really feel it. But when you feel it, you feel remarkably stable. It's actually when you no longer need as much effort to be stable because the mind actually likes its stability. It feels like it's in a nice flowing groove. And I've had this factor arise so strong that when someone rings the bell, I'm like, oh, I'm not moving. <laughs> wow, everybody else is moving, but I'm not moving. <laughs> wow, like I'm usually moving by now. Why am I not moving? Like, actually, I actually have, have to choose to do something different. I might, the mind really liked being stable. I'm not sure if any of you have felt that yet, but if you ever do feel that, that's a profound experience of this fifth factor, ekagata, ekagata. It's a, they call it one-pointedness. I don't like pointedness because, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a reduction of mind. You can have one-pointedness. It's really one frame where the mind is, is, again, sort of whole in its attention. So you have these five factors. You might... Um, you might take interest in them. You might, uh, as you're practicing, say, hey, what were those five factors, or at least a couple of them? I'm aiming my attention, but it's not very easy right now. Now, later on, yeah, I can really aim my attention. It's not sustaining. I can aim, but I can't sustain. It's like, oh, I can aim and sustain, but there's not so much delight. Okay, I'm aiming, sustaining. Yes, I'm happy to be here. I like this. Mm, I got three of them. This is good. Aiming, sustaining, <laughs> delighted. Oh, yeah, actually, on that third one, I'm starting to feel this a little more flow. What was the fourth one? Oh, yeah, uh, contentedness. Aiming, sustaining, delighted, contented. Aiming, sustaining, delighted, contented. Mm, wow, this is sweet. Loving kindness, maybe happy, maybe well. Mm, aiming, sustaining. So you actually can see when these factors are ripening, when you invite them and they arise, it actually starts to open up a little bit more stability of heart and mind. And that's really what the, what this grouping is meant to show a meditator, someone who's putting in their time. You can again just be the carrot in the crockpot. Or you begin to look at your own experience and say, yeah, it wasn't very present. It wasn't easy to be present. I wonder if, uh, which of these factors um, was not arising. Why was it so difficult? I could aim, but I couldn't sustain, or the delight was very low. Yeah, I wasn't that delighted. <laughs> it was, I was dull, I was tired, I was grumpy. Yeah, there wasn't much delight. And that's why there wasn't that sense of flow. That particular factor was hard to arise under those conditions. And sometimes you're grumpy. But if you're grumpy and you realize, wait, I'm grumpy, and that's really blocking my sense of ease. Let's see if I can actually let go of what I'm grumpy about and breathe it out and let it go. And from there, oh, I now that I've let it go, let go of that whole distraction, I can now invite these factors to ripen again. And when they do harmonize, when they do ripen, that's what allows me to be really stable within this loving kindness practice. As we develop um, tastes of this, tastes of a heart that's in flow, you get to know something. You get to know something within you, is that your heart, this is what your heart looks like when it's not blocked, 
when it's not got some strain on it, some obstacle blocking its light, blocking its warmth. And it's good for you to know that. It's good for you to know within your own experience, with your own reference of life, what it's like to have an unobstructed heart, what it's like when your heart's free. So when you, when you feel that, enjoy it, but also take note of it. This is a heart really unencumbered by resentment, by fear, by doubt. This is a heart that's not looking for happiness down the road. It actually is finding a lot of it simply here and now. This is a heart that's collected. It's not fragmented, not scattered. And you know that. It begins to show you, it begins to teach you what the cost of having your resentments, what the costs of your fears are, what the cost of your over, um, your uh, over planning of your life, putting too much busyness in, you get to see the cost of it. Because when your own heart unifies, rests, collects, feels whole, feels nourished, it's like, well, I actually am doing a better job of nourishing myself than anybody I've ever asked I've, never, I've always looked for love. I've always looked for a whole heart, but I've looked for it by experiences to give it from the outside because I never knew how to find that truly within. But now I actually know. I know I can actually be wholehearted. And it doesn't come by finally getting my parents to be different. <laughs> I, can, I can kind of put down that whole agenda because that won't actually feed me like my own wholeheartedness. And so there's a whole change of perspective when you learn how to make your own heart whole, when you know contentment, not from experiences, not from a huge production, but by sitting patiently and letting your heart collect, then you get to see true self-nourishment and you'll never find an experience that will truly nourish you through an experience like finally getting to go on some vacation, finally getting some experience you've always hoped for, that tends to be fleeting and tends to not really get deep into the heart. But when you know loving kindness and you know this collectedness, this samadhi of heart, especially around the Brahma Viharas, it's so reorienting. It begins to really shift your priorities and how you want to approach your happiness and contentment and it won't come from finally getting things from the outside and all your strategies of how to get them from the outside or pretend like you don't want them so you can finally get them in some really manipulative way. It's like, oh wow, a lot of that game falls away because I actually have really tasted much more deeply than I've ever known well-being, but it arose from within. That was, that was so astounding, so much well-being even if it was just glimpses, but it arose from within. And when that begins to be more of your orientation and you learn and you begin to orient, wow, let's head in that direction. It relieves all the relationships that you have from providing it for you. And you, can, you no longer are looking for it. You're no longer begging for it or scanning for it. Where's it gonna come from? And I have a friend, but they're irritated with me, and so now I can't get the reassurance that they offer me, and so where am I going to find it? And there's so much instability in trying to find it out here. You start actually cultivating it and knowing it from within. And then if people love you from the outside, it's all that much better. But it's not a dependency on external events, external beings, external uh, people or animals or experiences. You know it can be cultivated from within. So even if you just have tastes of it, that's a profound shift. If you know simple loving kindness practice and at times your heart feels whole and really, you know, if, if it's brief, it's hard to really take stock of it. But if it's brief, but it was there, that means your heart for a moment knew its own contentment by feeling its own love arising up from within. And that starts to change the equation that starts to fundamentally shift how we're oriented. And until you really taste that, it's hard to believe that it'll be true for you. I know I heard people talking about this when I was younger and I was like, they don't know my heart. <laughs> you know, 
I feel that, but I have to be with my friends. Or I feel that, but it's just, it's so random, I can't trust it. Or I feel that, you know, around a certain uh, situation, but my heart's never going to feel content from within. My God, I've known my heart. (laughs) I know my heart well, and it's just, it's so often hungry, or it's so often confused or a little awkward, and I don't, I can't trust my well-being, just me. It needs from the outside. And up until you know how to be fed from within, that's fine, because that's where we are in our stage of growth. But when you start to know well-being rising from within, it does start to change how you relate to the world. And then the, another layer that goes just beyond changing neediness from the world, you get to see, wow, actually, if I start to serve the world from the right place, I watch this beauty rising in me and it wants to be generous to the world. And now my well-being authentically is coming up as service, is coming up as loving the world, caring for the world. And so we can probably find that maybe first with the loving-kindness practice, the metta practice. But once you find it with the loving-kindness practice, you can also find it with the compassion practice. And then turn your heart towards the pains of the world and you feel this love come up from within your own heart as it can uh, be strong enough and oriented enough to care for the pain in the world. That also becomes nourishing and um, self-fulfilling and it becomes a, a feedback mechanism that compassion, true compassion, the full-hearted compassion, the healed heart that loves, then it loves caring for the world. And it's not fatiguing when, when you're lit up from within like that. And so that can come. And that also is a, is a way that this practice transforms us over time. And then other things can grow out of that place as well. But the first, the first signs, um, I'm not sure if any of you ever lived where there was a lot of snow and ice, but um, I grew up in Rhode Island. And there always comes a point where you're just like, God, will this winter actually ever end? You know, it's been layers and layers of snow and you're going through the winter and it thaws a little bit, but then it re-snows and it thaws a little bit. And then there's this incredible sign when you see the crocuses coming up and they come up through the first patch of snow. There's a snow, it melts, there's a little bit of worn out grass and these crocuses come up. And when they come up, you re- the earth knows when spring's coming. The earth doesn't get it wrong. So when you see the crocuses, it means the conditions are shifting and you know that winter had, the winter cannot keep going forever. But until you've seen the crocuses, you don't know exactly when winter's gonna end. And so these first moments that you feel loving kindness, these first times that you're practicing and you get visited by this ease, this intuition, it's satisfying. Again, if it's just moments, these are your own sort of crocuses coming up and it begins to transform the heart to being fed from within, to being liberated from old patterns of dissatisfaction or defensiveness. And so it's not to be underestimated. It's like, oh, that was just a moment. You know, I had a moment all nine days and I had like three moments. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you had the three moments. I mean, those are actually under the conditions. That was your heart. Um, letting down its defenses, resting itself, collecting itself, trying to really believe in kindness against all other experiences of how people have treated you, recalibrating towards kindness, generosity, patience. And then there's a moment. These moments come where there's flow, these moments of collectedness. They're really not to be underestimated. And then you'll see, well, that was the nine days on the retreat, but then you'll see what that really means for weeks and months, maybe years after this retreat, just getting those flow states. So how you get them is you don't chase them. That's too assertive, it's too constructive. You, again, rest in these conditions. You can really just do the practice and not think too much about it. You're really in the right conditions and conditions are powerful to develop this freedom and liberation of heart. So you don't have to worry about getting it right. But if you take interest in the process of how we're developing this wholeheartedness, 
that the Buddha gave these five factors to kind of get to know them, see them in your own practice. Maybe see if you're practicing a way that invites this clear intention of aiming, this clear intention to sustain your practice, be loyal to where you're pointing your heart, to see if you can brush yourself off and delight yourself again. You know, it's a long nine days, and so you might feel like, eh, I'm here, I'm doing the practice. Like, wait, 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 let's brighten up a little bit. Let's, let's come at this again fresh. Let's be here. This is beautiful. It's really self-transformation. It's world transformation. This is important stuff. Little reflection like that, and you feel, again, wind in your sails, and you have this delighted factor coming. Take stock in the fact that you're sitting here, and you might be more content than you realize yeah, your mind's a little distracted into something you're planning, but basically you're sitting doing nothing and you're largely content. How often is that true? <laughs> look, look at people sitting anywhere in the world and they're doing this <laughs> because they're not content. They sit there like, <laughs> like put it down, put it down. Like, <laughs> yeah, how many people are actually sitting there anywhere in the world content? It's rare. But you're actually doing it a lot here, and it's because the tide rose so slowly you didn't take stock of it. But anytime you're sitting here content, that's that beautiful sukha factor. And that particular factor, sukha factor, um, uh, is really important for other types of ripening of liberation. So again, that's um, of the five, that's the one that we really do want to make sure is in our practices. Um, knowing how to soothe ourselves, knowing how to be content with very little, knowing how to actually find some contentment in a simple practice like breathing, simple practice like walking, a simple practice like repeating loving-kindness phrases. Knowing that contentment from within is where we really start to be nourished from within, fed from within. And then this fifth factor of the, the mind that starts to not enjoy its it's looking around and it's scattering and it's all this dizzy um, amusement park rides of fear and discontent and obsession. But actually like, wow, I like putting it in one place. It's restful, it's collected. Your heart starts to really enjoy times of not having to do 10,000 things, but really enjoys the one thing. And our culture does not reward that or encourage that um, outside here. But in here, our whole practice style is that you might enjoy one thing. You might enjoy the taste of a bite of food. You might enjoy a step, a breath. So we're inviting this um, uh, wholeheartedness, this non-distraction, this non-fragmentation, allowing the heart to be whole, collected. And that's the fifth factor, this ekagata, one-pointedness. And that one comes a little slower to really have the mind be in this one place. Um, but you'll feel that. If you're looking for it, you can see at times the mind really does, the mind is actually grateful that you haven't given it 10,000 things to do in a short amount of time, but you're giving it one thing to do with a lot of time to let that become where it rests. And that's where this flow state comes. And Again, it visits us. And what you'll notice is that you like it and you cling to it, and it can only visit, but it will visit more and more often. So part of the art is to enjoy it while it's there. And then it, when it begins to fade, you support it. But if it really is starting to fade, grateful, thank you for visiting, and now I'm going to work with boredom. <laughs> now I'm gonna work with the sense of loss. Now I'm gonna work with the restlessness, like, ah. Uh, and there's that fantasy again, or there's that worry. Like, okay, I'll be patient. I won't chase these experiences. I'll be grateful they happened. Return back to the original practice, simple practice, and see if they visit again. Please have that attitude towards these arisings, these wholehearted collections of heart and mind. So let's head in that direction. Let's practice in that direction. Let's sit together for a little bit allow the heart and mind to be whole, collected, gathered. Let the body be relaxed and still. 
and you can gently aim your attention back into the loving kindness practice. Bring in the support of sustaining your attention gently, not being rough with the mind or the heart. Welcome a sense of delightedness, inspiration. You're doing important work. Relax and be contented. And see if you can be satisfied doing one simple thing at a time. So please enjoy your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.